Hello to all my loyal listeners, and I want to thank you for joining me for a long-awaited episode 32 of The Mark Guy Show. I want to apologize. I traveled home for the holidays, traveled back to my parents' house, to my wife's parents' house, and uh, really was trying to soak up as much time as possible with them. And certainly in my parents' house, there was not really a good place to be able to record a podcast at any time of day because it was pretty packed with people the whole time, which is awesome because it meant that my sisters were home, their boyfriends were around, uh, friends were around, you know, the, the family was all together, but it wasn't a conducive atmosphere to recording a podcast, whereas back in my own apartment, I have my own separate room, and um, you know, I can go far away from my wife and be able to record a podcast kind of in peace without noise, and also, it does take time to put these out, so I didn't want to sacrifice any time at all that I had with my family because I rarely get to see them. I live far away, and this was the only time I got... Well, I got back briefly back in March. My wife and I did a vow renewal. It was kind of our version of a wedding, uh, but that was... I flew in on a Friday. I was at my parents' house for a couple hours total, and I flew back out on the Sunday, uh, so that that didn't really count as a visit home. I never even got to my wife's house. Uh but I hope you under, you understand, and I'm going to try to put these out even more frequently now to catch up and to uh, put out content like I have been. But December was just kind of a rough month for putting these out. But there's plenty of news to talk about, so there's no shortage of content to discuss. And uh, first, I want to start out with an important piece of news that happened while I was away, and that is the retirement of my favorite author, Thomas Sowell. And I reference Soul quite a bit on this podcast because he's written so much and virtually any topic that you bring up, any topic that really there's been a debate about within American society, he's written something about it. And I haven't read everything that he's written, but I'm getting closer and closer. I did get quite a few of his books for Christmas this year, right before he retired. Uh, so I will be getting closer and closer to having read everything that he's written, but I've read his major works, and I've read probably t probably 12 to 15 or so of his books, and among those 12 to 15 are probably all of his most famous and well-known and easiest to find books. But I did want to give him some recognition here and implore you to please read a lot of what he has put out there, because I think he does such a great job of bringing basic economic analysis to the hands of every American, you know, regardless of if you, if you had any economic training whatsoever, or regardless of, of how much you know about history, he brings it to the point where you can see this is his point. He makes it clearly, and this is the evidence he has to support that point. And that's one of the things I like most about him is his simplicity. And especially when academic economics has seemed to go so far in the has seemed to go so far in the other direction. You know, has basically gone the gone in the direction of writing for other economists and incorporating more and more math. When really, yes, there's a place for that. There's a place for mathematics and economics, of course. But mathematics and economics is not going to get basic economic concepts to the average person. And I think once a certain science has made an impact on the on the world, it's when the average person understands it. And of course, what the average person knows isn't going to be on the cutting edge. It's not going to be the the newest and, you know, the most state of the art 
thing that that science has put out there. But I think what Soul has done such a good job of is getting those messages out to the public and also to really making it clear that there isn't as much gray area in economics as I think the academics want to make it seem. And one of the reasons why a lot of regular people distrust academic or economists is because they see they're twisting the facts, they're twisting numbers to try to fit what their preconceived notions are. But I think what Sol does a very good job of is saying, this is how, this is the economic concept, this is what happened, these are the incentives and constraints facing the, per, facing the various parties involved in this particular situation, and this is what actually happened, and this is why it makes sense logically. So, a huge appreciation for him, and I really would recommend any of you that have not read anything by him to go out there and, and to pick up some of what he's written. I will recommend a few of his books. I think Basic Economics may be the best in terms of what I was just talking about, bringing basic economics concepts to the average person. I think that book does a tremendous job. That book is longer. I believe it's five or 600 pages long, uh, but it's a quick read. It's a quick five or 600 pages. It's not dense. It's it's It flows. He does a very good job. I, I've seen people call him dry, but I think anything in economics is going to have some element of dryness to it. But among you know, among economic writing, I think it's the least dry out there. And I think he does a very good job of weaving a story together. But that book is tremendous. If you want to just get kind of an overview of what he thinks about a lot of different topics, possibly my favorite book by him, because these are, this is an issue that I'm fascinated with. It's the United States and all the various ethnic and cultural groups that came to the United States and the development of those different cultures and how we kind of all came together into one country and into one general American culture. That book's called Ethnic America. That was one of the first books I ever read by Thomas Sowell and I think it's just incredible. Basically what he does is looks he looks at each ethnic group, each major ethnic group that came to the United States and their story and some of them rose to prosperity quicker than others. Some of them took longer to reach prosperity, and he explains why that was. And groups came, and they didn't all just disperse randomly throughout the United States. They concentrated in particular areas. They worked primarily in, in particular industries, and why that was. You know, what what cultural what cultu- cultural characteristics were they bringing from? the old country or from where they came from that made them concentrate in those particular geographic areas or industries when they came to the United States. I think that stuff is just fascinating. If that fascinates you as well, you would absolutely love that book. And he also looks at the the progress of of the slaves, of the African slaves, and you know, takes it from the beginning of the of the slave trade and the progress after slavery was ended and the and the very rapid progress of blacks in the United States. So he looks at people that came here not just voluntarily, but also people that came here involuntarily. And I think he just does a great job. I think that's probably my favorite book if you were to ask me. I probably a lot of Thomas Sowell fans wouldn't say that because it's not really it's not necessarily economic in nature, the book. He does bring a lot of economic type analysis to that book, of course, because that's what he does. That's how his mind works, but uh, it's not really economic at its core, really the analysis. But that's another book I would certainly recommend. Uh, another one 
and I think this is especially important today in the with the election we just saw, but it's called The Vision of the Anointed. And his thesis in that book is that there are there are two different major groups of people in American politics and really in politics around the world. But he, he obviously has a he has an American focus because he's American and, you know, he can see politics firsthand here. But he says the same thing kind of plays its plays itself out in other countries, too. But you have the vision of the anointed, which you would probably equate with liberals today, basically that they have they are on a higher moral plane than everybody else because basically what they believe is that utopia is possible. So he Soul calls it the unconstrained vision throughout this book. And then the constrained vision is basically the belief that what we're doing is we have to choose between imperfect options. We have to find the the least imperfect option and that's the route we should go. But the unconstrained vision basically believes that perfection is possible. And one of the characteristics of this vision is looking at the intended outcomes of a particular policy rather than the actual outcomes of that policy. So it's it's evaluating, say, affirmative action on the on the intended outcomes that it will equalize outcomes that you know it will equalize disadvantages that particular groups have versus other groups rather than looking at what is what are the actual outcomes of those policies. And I think he does a great job of explaining why that is. Being able to put yourself on a different moral plane from everybody else lets you argue from that difference in moral plane. It makes you think, I'm fighting the good fight, so I can demonize my opponent. I can use ad hominem attacks. Um, I can I can basically say, I'm anointed. That's the, the vision of the anointed, whereas everybody else just has not been anointed yet. They don't understand what I understand. So I think that's a great book, especially in our current economic climate or in our current political climate because you see you really saw throughout this campaign a fight between those two different visions i'm not saying donald trump necessarily represents the constrained vision but i think one of the big problems that a a large portion of the american populace had with hillary clinton and her supporters was that they had the vision of the anointed and they believed that utopia was possible and i think a lot of people are, are starting to wake up and they understand that it's not possible that you know we need to choose between imperfect options everything is a trade-off and that's how we need to approach decisions how do we make the how, how do we make the least bad decision or you know the 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 best decision will not be perfect so those three books right there i think are probably my three biggest recommendations from the thomas soul bibliography so I wanted to give him a shout out and hopefully implore some of you to to read some of what he's produced because I think he's had a fantastically productive career and he's done a great service. And even if you disagree with him, even if you disagree with the conclusions that he reaches as a result of his analysis, I think you should at least respect him for taking a principled stand, I would say, or for being somebody that you can argue with based on the data. He He really isn't He's not somebody that will attack others using ad hominem types of attacks, and he does use data. So I think he's a worthy adversary, even if you disagree with him. And I think it is worth reading. One of the uh, 
one of the big tweets I saw being passed around, and most of the reaction to it was negative, if I'm if I'm being completely fair. But it was from uh, this writer Thor Benson. Kind of cool name, not cool analysis though. Uh, he said. Thomas Sowell is the favorite black guy of every white guy who wants to tell black people to shut up and work harder. Glad he's retiring. And then I read through the thread. So a lot of people, he got a lot of negative backlash from this. I saw very few positive comments in response, but somebody basically said, and it was, I believe it was a black commenter said to him, have you even read anything that he's written? And he said, Oh, I've seen interviews and I've read, I've read some, uh, some of his commentary read some of his opinion pieces, which are very short. They're nothing compared to his books. You know, I've, I, I've read his columns. They're nothing compared to his books. Columns, inherently, you need to shorten it up, and basically basically you can't go into the type of analysis you can go into in a book. So it's not necessarily a fair representation of what somebody thinks. So that's his entire exposure to Thomas Sowell and what a lot of other people have said, which if we know anything by now, we should know that what people say about a person or about a person's work is not really necessarily reflective of that person's actual work. Uh, and he said he's never read a book that Thomas Sowell ri- has written. So this is a big problem of mine with people having these kind of quick responses and people rightfully blasted this Thor Benson character who writes, I believe, for The Atlantic and Vice, uh, if I'm remembering correctly. I'm not going to go back and look. Because it's, it's those types of publications that, that he writes for. But just his quote shows basically no nuance whatsoever into what Thomas Sowell actually says. And if you actually read what he says, I was, ex- I was talking about this with my, with my sister's boyfriend. Because he's, he's the one that saw this first. Um, I didn't see this till later. But if you read what Sowell writes about black Americans, is he talks about how it, it's probably the most rapid and impressive rise for a people ever, at least among the people that he's ever researched, the groups of people that he's researched, coming up from slavery where the, the vast majority of blacks coming out of slavery were illiterate to within 100 years, rapidly approaching uh, white Americans in terms of income and in terms of, of outcomes. Uh, and of course, since the Great Society programs of Lyndon Johnson, things have deteriorated. So, if we're looking at you know strictly from the mid 1960s to today, yes, it has not been a rapid rise. But uh, that's one of Soul's favorite points to make is just about how impressive the rise of black people has been in the United States, and how. There is something to be said for the United States that it enabled a group to rise that quickly. And it also says a lot about the group of people being a resilient group of people. Um, so just the quote in of itself shows absolutely no awareness for what Sowell actually writes. And if anybody out there thinks this way about Thomas Sowell, please read what he writes and at least, at least disagree with him on an actual factual basis. Don't use hearsay and this type of analysis to argue somebody you disagree with. And the same thing for people on the far left. I tried to do that with Capital in the 21st century when I did that uh, that podcast, basically saying why I disagree with him. But I, I tried to get his point across clearly. I, I wasn't trying to argue with a falsehood. I tried to present his entire argument and then attack his actual argument, not just 
what other people have said about Piketty's work. So for those of you on the other side, don't do that to people uh, kind of in the in the libertarian, I guess Thomas Sowell you'd more call it conservative. I think a lot of libertarians uh, are certainly sympathetic with him, especially on economic issues. I, I'll be the first to admit I don't agree with Sowell on everything. But just because I don't agree with him on everything doesn't mean that he can't still be my favorite author. So I would implore those of you on the far left that disagree with a lot of what Sowell writes, disagree with it on the actual or disagree with the actual arguments that he makes, not just hearsay that other people have said. Another thing I wanted to discuss on this podcast uh, is Finland's universal basic income that just started January 1st. So it's a small sample size of the of the Finnish population, and they're handing out 560 euros, which is about $600 right now. The euro and dollar are pretty close to parity. Uh, and it's a sample of, I believe, um, I'm just going to confirm this, I believe 2,000, yeah, 2,000 randomly picked citizens. It's a two-year trial, and the Finnish government is handing them out 560 euros, and... This is regardless of whatever income is earned by people in the in the private sector or in their jobs or you know, however else they, they earn money. They will receive 560 euros a month from taxpayers regardless. And this is an idea that's picked up a lot of steam, of course, on the left. Uh, this is something that would fly, you would fly very well with, with the left, guaranteeing everybody a certain level of income. Uh, but libertarians as well have supported the universal basic income idea. I know that Charles Murray came out in support of it. Uh, a lot of people are coming out in support of it on a utilitarian platform, basically saying that this is more efficient than our current system where there are a bunch of different agencies and everybody's got to apply for all the different types of aid and there are all these bureaucrats and there are, there's all this red tape and, and, and everything and that makes it more expensive than just handing the money directly to people regardless of income or or anything. You know, negative income tax, which is a very similar idea, was advocated by Milton Friedman. So this idea has been out there for a while. A lot of countries in Europe have been proposing it. It hasn't happened yet anywhere. And this is the first instance, at least to my knowledge, of this actually happening uh, and of course like like I said before it's only 2,000 people so it's a small sample um, it's a it's a trial but I do assume that this will go forward that more and more people will be incorporated that uh, basically people in a democracy will vote this in because they believe that they're going to get more than they're putting in at least you know a majority of people will feel that way and the ideals behind it, I think, are in the right place. I've, I've tried to say that about, about the left in many instances. I think they do, for the most part, want to help people. And they think that a universal basic income will help people. I don't think it will. I, I don't advocate for it on this utilitarian platform. Now, if I had to choose between one or the other, if I had to choose between our current welfare state and some sort of universal basic income, I mean, if universal basic income is cheaper and I had to choose between those two with a gun to my head, I would choose the universal basic income. I think removing red tape is good. I think removing bureaucracy is good. Uh, but I, I, I don't think we should be evaluating or we should be approaching this issue that way. 
it's not like Donald Trump versus Hillary Clinton. And I've said the same thing, you know, with a gun to my head, I would prefer Trump over Clinton. Uh, but that's because those are our only two options. I don't think it's that way with the welfare debate. I believe that we can move toward liberty without having to implement a whole new universal basic income. Because I think what will happen with the universal basic income is it will spiral out of control. And people will continually vote for a higher threshold for, for a higher universal basic income. Um, and I think it will make more people than ever dependent on the government for what they see as being their livelihood. Uh, so I think it's a very slippery slope. Now, if if it was just at a point in time, which one would I prefer? Probably I would prefer the universal basic income over the current welfare state. But I believe that the universal basic income has the ability to spiral out of control far faster than the welfare state would be able to. So this is going to be something that we have to monitor. Um, I've been pretty critical of the libertarian cases in favor of universal basic income because of, of that reason. I don't think we should approach redistribution as a you know a one-off choice between two alternatives. I think we need to approach it as what is the easiest to whittle away at. And I think universal basic income, once inst once instituted, would be impossible to ever get rid of at least i think with the welfare state as it currently is you can there's fat around the edges that you can attack and hopefully move us away from that whereas universal basic income that's the system how are you going to whittle away universal basic income and now becomes that or nothing you can maybe reduce the benefits but i think once that idea is put out there once it's in place it's going to continually approach higher and higher levels so i think this is something in the united states we should be scared of um, i know C canada has become more and more sympathetic to this type of idea i know ontario floated a similar idea i don't believe it ever got out of the legislature i think it's still uh it, it's still buried somewhere and it hasn't passed but um now that finland's doing this it actually is happening this is not just hypothetical anymore not just theoretical anymore uh, so this is going to be something to monitor, and it'll be interesting to see how Finland frames it. Uh, I think that they probably will show benefits to start just because you are removing some of that red tape and some of that bureaucracy. And I think between those two alternatives, like I said multiple times, the universal basic income is probably better at this point in time. But I think it has far more ability to run rampant and to, and to go out of control. Uh, which I think you could say our current welfare state already is, but I think that the universal basic income is more dangerous. So that was another story I wanted to touch on. There's not a whole lot of news to talk about yet because it just started yesterday. Uh, but I'm sure, you know, I'm sure we'll be inundated with the news, especially if it's positive. The people that support universal basic income will be inundating us with the news. So this will be something that. We need to continue to monitor and need to really see how it goes and make sure that the facts coming out actually are fair because it depends on who's reporting these facts. And I put facts in air quotes. Uh, you know, is it an agency that has a vested interest in universal basic income continuing or is it an, an actual disinterested party? But, uh, I think that'll be relevant to the United States because I think that's coming. I think if 
the Fed especially wants to wants to drop helicopter money, basically, which is what Ben Bernanke said is always in the Fed's back pocket is helicopter money. If if they ever really need inflation, or you know they think that they need inflation that badly, you always have helicopter money. You can always drop money to the sky to people. I think the universal basic income would be a great way for them to implement that in a sort of Fed government intertwined type of policy to kill two birds with one stone in their mind. So I don't think this is remote on the United States landscape. And I think that if things get worse, you could certainly see these types of policies being pushed. I already see people advocating it all the time, but it hasn't really reached the point where it's in mainstream discourse. And then finally, I do want to discuss to close out this podcast. This is a request from a listener, but the MTV Dear White Dear White Guys, I believe it's called. Let's see, I have a news story up. Uh, 2017 New Year's resolutions for white guys. This is posted by MTV, and MTV has done a lot of things. Basically, basically the thesis is that white people suck, that white people are a drain on the planet. Uh, that's been MTV's position. They've put it out there before. This may be their most blatant example of this though this may be the furthest they've ever gone uh and basically this it targets white males so it's not talking about white females and i'm going to just take a couple quotes from this and and unpack it just how ridiculous some of what this is so one of the quotes was try to recognize that america was never great for anyone who wasn't a white guy end quote well Explain to me how how and why so many people have wanted to come to the United States then. It has not just been white people that have wanted to come to the United States. Immigrants from all over the world, Chinese immigrants have flooded into the United States. Japanese immigrants have flooded into the United States. Hispanic uh, immigrants have flooded into the United States. I know that they some some people consider them white, but... I don't think in this context, I think white guys, they're, they're talking about European guys. Uh, I don't think they're talking about uh, Latinos or Latinas. But Hispanic immigrants have flooded into the United States. African immigrants have flooded into the United States. People from all over the world have flooded into the United States. Now, unless they're completely irrational, which I do not believe that people that are choosing to uproot their entire lives to move to a new country are irrational. I think that they're making a rational decision that where I am moving is better for me than where I currently live. The United States is a far better option for me than where I currently live. Whether that's in a Central American country, or whether that's in an African country, or in, a, in an Asian country, they believe that the United States will be better for me than where I currently live. And it will be substantially better for me because you also have to factor in just the inconvenience and moving away from everything you know to go somewhere else. If it's a marginal upgrade, I'm not moving to another country. It's got to be a serious upgrade in my mind for me to decide to uproot myself and move to a new country. So they don't explain that at all. And nobody really explains that when they try to throw this thesis out there that that the United States was created by and for white guys. 
and everybody else has just kind of been forced to go along for the ride to benefit white males. And they're also not talking about white females, which the United States has been one of, if not the best countries in the world for white women to live. White women have enjoyed fantastic prosperity. And now unmarried women in that 25 to 34 year old age bracket earn more than men in the 25 to 34 year old age bracket. So this has been a great country for women, not saying it's the best country for white women, but this has been a great country for lots of groups of people. And that's why so many different groups of people have done anything they can to reach the United States. Now, have things been perfect? No, they have not been perfect in any country anywhere in the world. And I want to make it clear, I'm not saying that the United States and certain groups of people are not guilty of injustices against other groups of people. But that's not what this video is saying. This video is saying that the United States has only been great for white males and not for anybody else. And I think that's ignoring all historical fact, ignoring all evidence to the contrary, and just ignoring the flow of people today. And people are coming from all over the world to the United States today. Another one of their resolutions, which I actually agree with, but I think it shows that whoever made this video is not in tune with reality, but quote, stop bragging about being woke, end quote. Now, I don't know who except those who are already completely, have completely fallen into the social justice warrior cesspool would ever call themselves woke. You know, what white guys would ever call themselves woke. First of all, it doesn't make sense. I don't really know what it's supposed to mean. Does it mean that now you parrot all of the progressive rhetoric out there? Is that what woke means? I guess that's how I've seen it used. Uh, but I would say, yes, any white guys out there, stop using the term woke. We can all stop using the term woke because I think it doesn't really mean anything. And I think uh, all it is is a signal to other people that think like you that you think in this given way. But um, I agree with this. Don't try to take over the language of other groups of people. Don't try to virtue signal by using a, a word like woke. Uh, I don't know if the rest of it's even worth my time to really, uh, you know, to really unpack. But just really the, the general idea of this video, it's short. You can watch it. You can have your own analysis of the video. There are a lot of other people out there talking about this that are probably giving a far more detailed analysis of this video. But I think it does show that there's a, you know, there are racial issues in the United States, but I think they're more directed in the other direction than what we typically think they are. That now it's socially acceptable for an outfit like MTV, for a mainstream outfit like MTV, to post an entire video demonizing white males as a whole. And you cannot do that for any other group, you know. Imagine if a mainstream outfit posted a video demonizing black males as a whole. That outfit would probably be closed. People would boycott it, and and rightfully so, because I don't think we should be generalizing entire groups of people. Uh, but when it's white males, all of a sudden that's okay in mainstream discourse for whatever reason. Uh, and I think all that they're doing, you know, all that these types of videos do, 
is it forces more and more people to movements like the alt-right. And I've talked about the alt-right a lot on this podcast and how the Democratic playbook in this election pushed a lot of people to groups like the alt-right. You know, that kind of bunker mentality where now people think, well, everybody dislikes me or the majority of people dislike me because I'm a white male, so I'm going to go join a group that says being a white male is okay. Being a white male is a good thing. And, and, you know, that's one of the tenets, I guess, of the alt-right. They push it far further than that, but they're going to join a group that tells them that, that doesn't tell them you have something to be ashamed of because you're a white male. So that's why groups like the alt-right have sprung up and why they will continue to get stronger as long as this happens until the people that support these kind of things finally realize, you know, we shouldn't be we shouldn't be doing what we ourselves criticize so much when it's done to other groups of people. We should not be demonizing white males as a whole because we know how we would react if black females as a whole were being labeled in this way. We're being criticized in this way that black females as a whole need to make certain New Year's resolutions because of things that they don't do that maybe a very small percentage of, of that group does, all of a sudden now we need to apply it to all black females. I think that's deplorable just as much as doing the same thing to white males are. But of course, white males are an acceptable target currently. But I think they need to realize all they're going to do is continue to fuel these fringe groups on the far right, I guess you could call it. I don't really know where to put the alt-right on the political spectrum, but you're going to continue to fuel those kind of groups the more that you push this kind of rhetoric. And this is the furthest that I've seen MTV go. And other outfits have done it as well. Uh, But MTV, you would think, shouldn't be as politically motivated as some of these news sources online, news sources online, uh, that clearly have an ideological bent you know the Huffington Post you know they're going to post things like that because they're appealing to a particular group of people that think a particular way Uh, but MTV you would think at least of course this isn't how it is in reality that they would want to adopt a more centrist they wouldn't want to take political stands because they want to appeal to as many people as possible but they're not doing that because it is seen as acceptable today to demonize an entire group entire group of white males and you saw it after the election as well, saying that Donald Trump was only elected because white males towed the line, you know, that they they voted their own kind, and that was why Donald Trump won, when I don't think the actual result could be any further from the truth, but that was how it was framed. So until this is no longer seen as acceptable, you're going to continue to fuel fringe groups on the right, like the alt-right. And... All it's going to do is continue to polarize on either side. And it's going to be a continued one-upmanship because when you feel that bunker mentality, it's like a it's like a father with a rebellious daughter that he doesn't like her boyfriend. You know, her boyfriend, for whatever reason, you know, he drives a motorcycle or, you know, he's older than her, or he drinks or, or whatever. The more that the father freaks out about it, the more that that rebellious daughter will dig in because she sees now her and her boyfriend as being under attack. And people like that bunker mentality. They like to feel, I'm fighting the good fight. I'm doing the right thing. I'm protecting other people that I care about. So all that these types of videos do is fuel that bunker mentality. 
So I want to thank you for joining me. Hopefully I didn't lose too many, too many of my listeners over the last two weeks, but I'm going to try to put out more content now to make up for that absence. And I appreciate, I hope you had a fantastic holiday season and new year and here's to making 2017 great.